Salutations, dear listener, and welcome to another remedial episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Hunter Cates. And I'm Chris Gallagher. And we're about to give you a heavy dosage of motion picture and pop culture insight to serve as a digital antidote to your otherwise dull and dreary daily life. On today's show, we're reviewing David Cronenberg's latest film, Maps to the Stars. Then in special features, we'll be discussing comedic detours by dramatic directors. And finally, we will wrap up the show as we always do with a couple of film recommendations. And I just wanted to point out, because if you listen to what I just said and then what you just said, I think that this episode is brought to you by the letter D. I'm not sure if we intentionally did that going in, but I, I like the outcome of it. Yeah, D just better pay up. Yeah, D, no, D is a fantastic letter, so we're uh, happy to provide that alliteration. Uh, to begin, let's, we're going to do a little throwback here. Cause as you probably recall, longtime listeners of the show, which I guess would be two months, uh, you'll recall that our first episode, which you can find at warstartsatmidnight.com, we discussed career comebacks and one of the individuals we talked about was Harrison Ford. And I think I speak for Chris as well. Whenever I say that we were coming from a place of genuine admiration and affection for M- Mr. Ford, because he's kind of like a, a, uh, cinematic grandfather if a cinematic you curmudgeon Cin- cinematic curmudgeonly grandfather and anyways as all of you have no doubt heard uh he recently survived a plane crash his single engine world war ii era plane crashed in a santa monica golf course because i believe the engine exploded and he was able to safely navigate it and then once the plane crash landed he pulled himself from the wreckage and had to be helped by a couple of physicians who were like okay dude you you need you need uh you need help and he was perfectly willing to just resist it so the the moral of this story is that you can make a comeback and demonstrate that you are still a badass without having to do it cinematically yeah i i actually think i respect him more for for this this is you know he's not he's not jumping on like taking eight once Liam no. Neeson says I'm done, he's he's doing it in, in real life. No, and he's not doing any Oscar Beatty supporting actor performances. He is a 72 year old man who just pulled himself from the flaming wreckage of an exploding World War II era single engine plane, and that's something that I don't imagine Eddie Redmayne or Chris Evans or Liam Hemsworth will ever do at 72 or 27 or any age. So good for you, Harrison Ford. And in all seriousness, I'm glad to hear you're safe. I'm sorry I ever doubted you, and you're still a true hero. Speaking of heroes, Chris, have you heard about this 29-hour Avengers marathon that they're doing at Regal Theaters and AMC? I I have, and I just logistically don't even understand this. I don't understand the type of person who'd want to do that. Because I can't sit anywhere for 29 hours. I I think I do. Like, I think I know a couple of people who, who might. It's just, it's not, it's not my thing. It's not for me at all. And granted, I'm not a uh, huge comic book fan. I sort of pick and choose, or I, I guess I should say, I don't, I don't like them across the board. I don't like the Marvel movies, the Avenger movies across the board. There are some that I really like, and then there, there are others that, uh, you know, just don't, you know, they're, they're decent for what they are. And I think if, you know, the type of person who goes to this is already a huge fan, so it's probably not going to bother them or they may not even notice, but what they'll quickly realize is that every single Marvel movie is essentially the same. It's all the same movie. But do you think, uh, do you think Marvel, I mean, it kind of seems like the way that they've engineered all this, this is exactly what they were building to this sort of thing where it all in 
some sort of way they, you know, at least they say, oh, it's all connected together and it all fits in one no, giant well, story of one giant universe. Well, that's what they said about Lost, too. And I, and I think that that's, that's, more the, that's more what they're saying. But, I mean, each individual movie is the same as the last one to me. And here's what I don't understand about The Adventures is what qualifies as something so uh, heinous, so terrifying that they have to assemble. Because why is Ultron... More more reason for them to assemble than, say, in Thor, the Dark World, wherever there was an elf who was trying to destroy all of existence. That seems to me he was trying to, again, destroy all of existence. Yeah, but you got to you got to space them out, Hunter. You got to you can't make every movie an Avengers movie. You got to you got to fill well, it then in. They need in to be they need to be more uh, consistent with their level of threat, their threat level. Because to me, like I said, an elf from before humanity trying to wipe out the not just the human race, but all of existence seems worse than Ultron to me. I'm I'm going to be completely honest right now. You're talking way over my head right now with, um, with Thor: The Dark World reference. Yeah, I don't think I've seen anything since the Avengers movie. Um, well, then are you excited at all for Avengers Age of Ultron? I, I actually am. Like, and I've intentionally, like, this is something that I used to always do. I'm a little more lax on it lately, but, uh, I've actually, I haven't seen a single trailer for it. I haven't, um, you know, taken in anything of the sort of hype machine, mm-hmm. uh, because I was actually, and I wouldn't say, you know, it definitely wasn't one of my favorite movies of the year, but I was actually surprised by the first Avengers film. That, uh, you know, going into it, I thought you have way too many characters. You have just way too much going on. You know, characters that like Black Widow and Hawkeye, that they uh, didn't really have much establishing for them going into it. So it's like, OK, well, we're going to have to have something to give them a little bit of a story. Uh, I was just really worried that it was going to feel like, you know, an hour and a half of setup. And then finally, you know, it gets into the the story going because it is sort of you know it's the origin story of the avengers as a mm-hmm. as a team and origin stories not always but they do have a tendency to be a little sluggish and i thought uh you know joss whedon did a pretty good job with sort of mixing i think i think really the key here was the way he mixed action and comedy and so you don't get uh whereas with like a michael bay movie he may think he's giving you comedy and jokes but he's really not he's just abrasively hitting you across the face with action for you know these long two and a half hour run times whereas with uh, the avengers he really broke it up uh quite a bit mm-hmm. and every time you would have a little comedic beat to punctuate the end of of something or or whatever it kind of rejuvenated my uh enjoyment it didn't just feel like one one big fight after another and so uh, well, I didn't think it was, you know, the best film of all time. I, I enjoyed it. So what, it, and, and I just want to commend you on your strategic appeal to our fan base by, <laughs> uh, talking up Josh Whedon and denigrating Michael Bay in this, in the, in this, <laughs> is in that this our space. fan base? I think so. Okay. I mean, I would certainly hope so. These are internet nerds. Um, but I guess we'll find out. Um, my opinion, my kind of opinion on the next Avengers and essentially any blockbuster at this point, and this just goes to show how old I am is I don't really get excited about, it. I'm not counting down the days or getting my midnight ticket or anything like that. It occurred to me that they, they feel to me like Sunday. And what do I mean by that is I look forward to Sunday. I like Sunday. I know that Sunday's inevitable. Usually Sunday is always the same, but mm-hmm. I still enjoy it and I still look forward to it. So superhero movies to me are like Sunday. 
Okay. I, I like it and I'll, I'll participate in it when inevitably comes. Well, Hunter, of the two of us, I think you are the curmudgeon old bastard. Just like Harrison Ford. Now, let's move along from larger-than-life superheroes to larger-than-life personalities. Now buckle up, ladies and gentlemen, in your convertible and slap on your Ray-Bans as we take a ride down Rodeo Drive into David Cronenberg's Hollywood hack job, Maps to the Stars. How's your business? I have to get this part. I was just thinking about converting. There's so many movies out there. What are they offering? Five million. Celebrities. Fan base. Sundance. Tablets. Career move. Hire me. Cool. Now you hit Tinseltown, what are you going to do? The films of David Cronenberg exist in an odd reality, occupying a space that is recognizable yet vague. By crafting these worlds of familiarity at arm's length, Cronenberg gives his audience something to grasp onto as he leads them on a descent into the bizarre underbelly that he truly wanted to exhibit from the beginning. With his latest film, Maps to the Stars, he takes us to a very real town that has been placed on screens big and small countless times before, Hollywood, California. There, he examines the interwoven lives of egomaniacal soul-suckers. What, that all sounds too cliché for you? Okay, fine. There's also a gypsy girl with burns across half her body who wanders around town with a fat wad of cash and may or may not be causing surreal supernatural events to occur to those with whom she comes in contact. So, Hunter, what's your take on Maps to the Stars? Does the Canadian auteur bring anything new to the pre-existing pile of metacinematic Hollywood narratives? And if so, does his own brand of grotesque oddity punctuate or obstruct that for you? Well, as an egomaniacal soul sucker myself, I would have thought that I would have gotten more out of this because, to put it bluntly, I did not enjoy this movie. And the reason being is I did not know what David Cronenberg wanted of me. And and I'm not averse to ambiguous narratives. I'm not averse to ambiguous morality in pictures. But at some point in time... I would like the director to indicate whether this is supposed to be funny, this is supposed to be enlightening, this is supposed to be condemnatory. It to me, it just felt like David Cronenberg, Cronenberg, excuse me, really, really hates Hollywood, and he really, really hates the people in it. And so he created exaggerated versions of these Hollywood archetypes, put them in this this horrendous world, and then just did horrible, awful things to them. So he's almost a malevolent god punishing people he doesn't like, but he can't punish them in real life, so he's going to punish them in a film. Interesting. Okay, so you you obviously didn't find any of these uh, kind of more common things to grasp onto in this, in this it, it, film. Even the, the, I, the Cronenbergian uh, traits the the as you as you kind of said the, the the little oddities here and there. Yeah he I mean through I, I think he tends to kind of give you these little nuggets right. uh, so that as he, as things get weird or get, you know, into the uh, supernatural odd sort of places, um, that's sort of your, your bearing, your grounding uh, in, you know, one foot slightly in reality. Well, and then I like that you use the word grounding because I didn't know what he was trying to say by these supernatural elements. I, did, I didn't know what that was supposed to be indicating. The word grounding is appropriate because this is not something that I recognize. Even if we've seen Hollywood movies before, even if we know the cliche about uh, Hollywood, as you said, being ecomaniacal soul suckers, 
I could neither relate to these characters nor was I particularly intrigued by them, nor did I really want to watch them. I just, they were there. They were awful people, but they weren't entertaining in an awful funny way. They were just bad people, and then he was doing bad things to bad people. So it's just a cycle of unpleasantness that, I, you know, you can watch it at the time, but I don't see myself revisiting, and I didn't really like it at the time. You know, I, I think it's interesting. Um, you mentioned sort of there's nothing funny to grasp onto or, or whatever. Uh, this is a movie that before seeing it, uh, you know, in talking with people about it, um, everyone seemed to have a different take on what it was supposed to be. You know, I, I heard from some people that, oh, it's a dark comedy or uh, would read, oh, it's this horror. Well, picture. and I think in most and I think in most uh, journalistic accounts, it's been positioned as a dark comedy mm -hmm. and it certainly has comedic elements. And, and I think that's a little unfair. Like I would say of all the uh, genres that he's sort of dipping a toe in. And I, I would say that's sort of what he's, he's hopping from. It's, it's not just one, um, not just one genre that he's uh, presenting to us, but he's sort of uh, making this amalgam of it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit comedic, but not throughout. Like I, I think the movie, as far as like just conventional uh, comedy goes, even dark comedy, like it starts out a lot funnier than it gets. Like it, it gradually gets darker and darker. Which I kind of, I kind of personally enjoyed. Like just the way that it's not, it's not a yuck fest. It's just you'll laugh despite yourself at just how uh, heinous these people are. But then there, there but, were a few, there were a few places where I like had had some belly laughs, had some uh, had some chuckles. So how'd you get AIDS, Cammy? Um, I don't have AIDS. It's not Hodgkin's lymphoma. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm going to make a movie of your life, right? Ryan Gosling will play me and I'll play you. And then there were, there are other places where, um, I don't know if this script written by Bruce Wagner, um, if this was, I don't know enough about it to know if this was written for Cronenberg, if this is something Cronenberg picked up, but there were these, these jokes that fell very flat or felt very odd, um, particularly coming out of, um, you know, characters that, uh, you know, Cronenberg has a bit of this heightened reality sense of, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the characters that you see on screen aren't necessarily real people. They're a little bit archetype. They're a little bit, um, you know, not, not necessarily a guy that you would approach on the street, but at the same time, in the back of your mind, you have an idea of who that, that person is. And, well, not even not and, approach on the street there again, they're, they're Hollywood weirdos. And, you know, well, but, they, and, they, and if, I'm, and I'm speaking more like throughout his career, like oh, that's, oh, that's right. sort yeah. of exactly the, uh, the every man kind of like, yeah. Like, I mean, it's almost, it's almost weird typage of, um, he gives you an idea, but it's not exactly a complete person per se. And he's, uh, kind of working in this playground. Well, but, and, and to me, uh, that almost speaks to my big problem with Maps to the Stars is you have a picture like uh, Videodrome, and the main star in that is James Woods, and yet I felt more uh, – I felt I had more in common or more to like and wanted to hang out with James Woods, of all people, than anybody in this. So you just who's upset a, who's that – a legitimate, Who's a legitimate weirdo. You, you upset that John Cusack got the, the role over James Woods? Is that where we were? Well, actually, we can talk more <laughs> about John Cusack here uh, in a little bit because uh, I, I kind of felt that that was miscasting. Mm -hmm. But, really? but, but the, the overarching, my, overarching my opinion of the picture, I will preface this by saying – 
uh, I believe it was last summer, Ira Glass uh, kind of started a conversation whenever he said that he did not like Shakespeare. It, it, I may mm-hmm. be paraphrasing, but he said, I think he may have gone so far as to say Shakespeare, Shakespeare this is hard to say, Shakespeare sucks. He was yeah, saying, but Shakespeare sucks, Shakespeare's boring, and something, something and to that yeah, effect. Yeah, he was saying Keen Lear and there was nothing relatable about mm-hmm. it. And that's because he wasn't watching Ron. Exactly. Had he had he been watching Ron, uh, R A N, by the way, uh, he would have felt differently. But the the response to it, which I thought was appropriate, was that you it's not it's a modern conceit that you should have to relate to characters in a movie and I or a, any story that you have to relate to them. What was what David Cronenberg was trying to do in this was almost of a Greek tragedy level. These mm-hmm. these were almost. Uh, gods on Mount Olympus who are That's, behaving badly. It's interesting that you say that, though, because there's actually a line where uh, Agatha, played by Mia Wasikowska, is uh, at a diner with Robert Pattinson's character, uh, Jerome, and they're sitting there talking. And I don't want to get too deep into exactly what she's pitching because it's sort of uh, it's it's a little bit spoilery. You have um, but, to see it for it to make more sense. Uh, yeah. But she's basically Robert Pattinson. He's this limo driver. Uh, been sort of driving her around town. She's sort of courting him as a love interest in a weird way. But um, uh, he's he's a limo driver, but he's also a, a he wants to be an actor. As right. Everyone. Yeah, Hollywood exactly. Does. Yeah. Um, and so she starts pitching to him uh, this idea for. Uh, a film that she has that she she says she's writing a script i have a great idea for a movie maybe we could write it together it's got an incest theme i guess those are kind of overdone huh sex abuse in your religion the truth is my parents were brother and sister i never tell anyone that but i think it'd be cool i mean it's kind of been there done that i know that sounds jaded but i think it'd make a cool indie you know i want to act in it and you could too Mm. I think it'd be good if it wasn't pretentious, you know, if we got the whole mythological thing going on. Uh, one of the notes that I had on this movie was like, the movie that we watch, is this that film that she proposes about, I don't know, a quarter halfway through? And 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 yeah, again, without getting too spoilery, they do touch on Oedipal themes. Yeah. And so that would, again, make this seem like this is David Cronenberg trying to end Bruce Wagner, trying to do a Greek tragedy and who are the Greek gods of modern American society, but Hollywood film stars. Mm-hmm. The problem, I think, and why and where it falls flat is even in a picture like Oedipus or uh, Oed- not a picture, a play like Oedipus Rex, um, you even if you don't relate to him per se, you learn some lesson about the human condition at the end of it and throughout it teach all the greek tragedies even if they're about gods the gods still have human foibles and you learn something because that within this picture the characters are so outlandish that if if had they been outlandish and it was funny and they made a, a straight comedy about it then then they would be enjoyable in that direction but instead they're outlandish, they're not relatable, and they don't have to be relatable, but you, but you don't really learn anything about the human condition. You just, again, like I said, you have very bizarre, eccentric people who you don't really enjoy being around, and then David Cronenberg just does awful things to them. And so, and like I it's, said, I don't know what well, I'm and, supposed to get out of and this that's, movie. that's sort of where the horror genre comes in a little bit, is he's... You know, he's punishing the bad people for doing bad things. You know, we had we had a professor in college who uh, would say that horror films are the most conservative films there are, because uh, at least in the more traditional sense, it's always the bad kids who get killed off and the 
you know, the the good girl who's staying home right. uh, doing her homework is the one that survives. And this is a horror film in which there's not really uh, an instigator, Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees doing something. It's just the circumstances that are happening. So, again, it's David Cronenberg as God mm. punishing these people. But even in horror movies, there's still something to latch onto and something to take away from it. And... I, I I know I'm repeating myself here, but I just don't know what David Cronenberg wanted us to feel from this beyond just he hates Hollywood and he wants us all to notice it. You know, I really enjoy this sort of conversation because I totally understand your perspective and where you're coming from. But I had a just completely different reaction to the film. And, you know, that, so in a nutshell, you'd say you liked it. I, yeah, I, I liked it quite a bit. I would say it's not one of my favorite Cronenberg films. Um it, but at the same time, I did like that it kind of feels a little more back into his old wheelhouse. You don't quite have the body horror thing, which I would say is my favorite of his uh, sort of periods, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Videodrome or even um, later like Existence, um, anything from that sort of uh, genre of him that's not Crash. Mm-hmm. Crash is a movie that um, I have tried to go back and and watch and and you know i every time i go back and watch it i think okay this is going to be the time that i get it and crash uh that we're speaking of it's not the what 2005 right, exactly, or 6 yeah. academy that's award a different, winner that's a different type of horror yeah yeah uh this is the i think what 1996 film with james spader yeah uh one of the very few nc17 mainstream pictures uh i think it came out concurrently with showgirls or within a few years of showgirls but see i would say crash is one of those movies where you have no heroes no redeeming characters nothing to uh to la- like i i think that's my my thing with that film um i just have nothing that i enjoy um about the film beyond like maybe uh that's the difference between that and this is this i i understand like the character you don't have a hero you don't have even the one person to root for the one the the entire message is these are terrible people yeah but um the thing that i did latch on to was agatha uh mia vasakovska's character and sort of i'm glad you can pronounce that anytime i need to mention her i'm going to <laughs> just, say that mia just, or maya just, See, i can't even pronounce her first name just point to me yeah uh she's sort of the she is the one thing that that i grasp onto and mm-hmm. and sort of followed through and i i think that's probably the intent i mean it opens with her it closes with her um and she's not she's definitely the least bad i mean if anything you could say maybe this is a revenge movie um which puts it squarely in line with the horror. Um, but she's kind of uh, nothing that she does is absolutely terrible or awful. Well, I should take that back because there is an event uh, with Julia. Yeah, Moore's it winds character. up. It winds up. Yeah. She winds up doing awful things. Well, um, but even, she, but even before kind of, that though, uh, do you remember? Let's dance around this a little bit. Do you remember the scene where Julian Moore has her moving the planners outside and then, she comes out singing and starts mm-hmm. dancing right. with, with Agatha. And that's a really like, uh, you know, these and the events that happen, they aren't completely um, written out. Like, uh, well, you mentioned this and I didn't and I didn't really get this. You believe that uh, Mia Vasakovska, you believe that she's causing these things. I think uh, there's definitely a case to be made there. And I I wouldn't say that it's like. Okay, well, here's the formula. You look at this scene and this scene and this scene, and um, obviously it's happening. But there's enough um, 
that, and I, I think Gronenberg's intentionally leaving it open ended so that you could have a discussion of did she or didn't she, but there's enough sort of coincidence in the way like she'll meet a character and then something will happen to them or um, those she has to, it seems she has to have some sort of relation with them. Um, be it, she just meets them or she has past history with them or whatever to then um, for anything to happen. Interact. Yeah. Yeah. Interact with them in some perhaps supernatural way uh, with, with their, uh, their life and their mind. And that, I guess that's the thing, you know, it's a very Cronenbergian sort of, sort of thing. That's the thing that kind of kept me going through it and kept me um, interested uh, because, you know, like I said, the comedy doesn't work the, with these characters that are, well, I wouldn't say that it doesn't work. It's just, he never really commits to it. Well, it's, but that's, uh, you know, Bruce Wagner has these jokes that Cronenberg like goes through the, the jokes on the script, but he never, yeah, I guess he never commits to it. It feels because he is presenting these sort of odd archetypal characters. They don't like, there's the, the scene where, uh, Benji played by Evan Bird, the you know young child actor, mm-hmm. um, is at a party, I guess, with some other young mm-hmm. uh, young actors, and they're going back and forth making poop jokes. I think, yeah, and it's like almost screwball dialogue, and the in the way that it's written and intended to be delivered, mm-hmm. but it completely falls flat. Like it's not, and so you think that's on Cronenberg? I think it's on Cronenberg. I guess, yeah, pretty much entirely because he should have at least taken it out. Um, I don't think it fits in his oeuvre of how he, you know, he's, he's not, when I think of comedy, I don't think of David Cronenberg. Well, and to that point, there are a lot, it's, it's a very slow picture and there's, so there's a lot of events like what you just described wherever it probably could have been taken out, but it seems like it, again, it's just there to establish what we already know. That being is that all of these are bad people. Mm-hmm. And and so it doesn't you can figure that out pretty early. Maybe he should have just trusted the ability of his actors to convey that these are awful people way sooner. But he, it's just like he wants to keep on letting you know and don't. And but it's happening in scenes that aren't particularly compelling or advancing the narrative. And so it just you're seeing it feels like just the same sentence rewritten and said over and over again. And so the, that it hampers the experience was had it been tighter and those scenes being cut out, it probably would have moved quicker. And I certainly think that would have helped. So you think if this was down to like a tight 90 minute, just sort of, well, I, I mean, and- well, no, my big problem again is still just, I don't, I don't, it's, it's just, like I said, bad things happen to bad people. And mm-hmm. that can be five minutes or it can be five hours. It's, uh, there's only so much appeal to that for me. So you mentioned maybe, you know, had he given more, uh, faith in his actors. Let's talk a little Actually, bit about, yeah, I'm glad that. about the performances. Um, what did, what was your take on that? Was that the, the maybe big, a silver the big, yeah, lining? Exactly. The big one that everyone's going to be talking about and already are talking about is Julianne Moore. Uh, I believe it was Peter Travers with the Rolling Stones said that she has done a remarkable thing. She has done a ego-free performance as a creature completely consumed by ego. And that sounds like a pretty good description. And I think in a better movie that it this and maybe coming out in a different time period as opposed to you know february right after mm-hmm. oscar season that this would have been a, a really memorable remarkable performance but i think it'll probably be forgotten just because it's again i don't feel it's a very good movie i don't think it's going to be a very memorable movie and so i feel julianne moore is shortchanged by her circumstances in this picture yeah i i think the actress not the character i think she was fantastic in this i mean uh 
I, I haven't seen still Alice, but this is like, this is probably, if not the best, one of the best performances I've ever seen her in partially because I felt like I didn't even recognize her on screen in everything from her physicality to her. Um, just, she was a real bitch and well, and, and just, you know, again, the vanity thing, there was not, she didn't have a lot of makeup, so you could see all the freckles. You could see the, the pale 40, 40 to 50 year old something flesh. So it, again, there, there wasn't any vanity in this. And so I like that again, as it said, you have a person who has who, an actress who is showing that she doesn't have any vanity playing somebody consumed by, by vanity. Mm-hmm. And so I admire that. Well, and that, that's exactly like seeing her up on screen. Never was there a time when I thought like, oh, this is just Julianne Moore being Julianne Moore. It felt like she's crawled into the skin of this ugly, terrible human being. But I thought, you know, I really thought mostly across the board, the, uh, performances were pretty good. Uh, I, I really liked Evan Bird, the, the young, uh, he was, he was very good too. And he was, and he conveyed that, you know, you have this vacuous and frankly venomous mm-hmm. young actor who's kind of a, almost like a Justin Bieber, but who is, yeah, turns I, out to be kind of a very, psychopathic like, monster. I would, I would be really surprised if he wasn't at least in some manner sort of formed on Justin Bieber. You know, maybe mm-hmm. maybe there's a Canadian but, connection exa- there with exactly. Cronenberg. I don't know. Well, and actually, we say Justin Bieber, but it's really just insert Disney star here because they've just got such a, a, a an assembly line of producing mm-hmm. young people. And that even, that even happens in the stories. There's this new young actor who starts to take his place and get all the laughs. And so he's tremendously bothered by that but the mm-hmm. idea of just like i said the, the disney uh framework of producing a new young star all the time is that maybe what one of the things that that you don't like though is a lot of these characters maybe seem like insert blank here you know julian Moore insert uh faded actress here insert uh disney star here john husack uh, playing this uh, kind of like Stanford. a dement, yeah, demented Tony Robbins almost. Yeah, I mean he's he's very like I would say he's one of the characters that is a little more two dimensional. Like there's there's not as much going on, and I don't know I don't know if that's at the fault of John Cusack. I'm as well, on the and- record of not being a great mm-hmm. fan of John Cusack. Um, I actually thought he was better here than I normally like. Well, uh, okay, we talked about Julian Moore and then uh, the young guy, and then. The two people who I thought didn't do a good job were Robert Pattinson. Is it Pattinson or Pattison? Uh, it doesn't I, matter. I, I we, believe it's Pattinson. You all know who we're talking about. I don't get him. I, 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 don't, I don't get him. I don't think he was given enough to do, though. Because I don't he think was, he's capable of it, though. No, I disagree. Because I, he was actually one of the draws for me going into this, which sounds bizarre. But mm-hmm. did you see Cosmopolis? I, and that's the thing. I've not seen Cosmopolis. Okay. Co- and, you know, I haven't seen I haven't seen any of the Twilight movies. I haven't seen right. probably I haven't seen the Rover, which he was in last year, which mm-hmm. got sort of mixed reactions. But people seem to either really love that performance or or really hate it. Mm-hmm. I think Cosmopolis might be the only thing that I've seen him in. But he, you know, going into that, he had such a. Uh, so much baggage, you know, coming with him right. that I was just sort of blown away by that performance. He very, very methodical, very well, um, well delivered, very cold and chilling, you know, very Cronenbergian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was really excited to see him well, partnered and, and- with, with Cronenberg again to see what they would do. And then he's really a, a tertiary character that does, isn't given a whole lot. I mean, he's, he's almost a pawn to get Agatha 
Vasakovska's mm-hmm. character from one place to another. You literally as as a chauffeur, but also um, sort of connecting her to right um, to other characters as and well. And having having not seen having not seen Cosmopolis, just just this. What I will say is, he, it just seemed to confirm my my almost prejudice, you might say, about again about Robert Pattinson. Is just that he just seems kind of like a mopey. Oh, I don't want to be here kind of yeah, actor that, I and, mean, and, it, and it's one of those things that it's it's just dull you know if you, the, if you don't enjoy your work then i'm not going to enjoy watching you do but it this is not the film that's going to change your mind about him either, yeah i don't think so what about let, let's talk a little bit about john cusack john cusack works in movies in which he plays sort of the dry sardonic everyman and in this he's playing a character who should be oh in my opinion, larger than life, charismatic. I actually think that this would have been a lot better for played by a Nicolas Cage, someone who is going hmm. to give a lot more energy to it. But you had John Cusack, who his appeal is not his energy. I don't think I've ever seen him give an energetic performance. That's not who he is. And so you have him playing this outlandish uh, TV, yeah, TV psychologist. A- yeah, he's. You see several times. You see his like infomercial running, where he's just standing in front of a probably green screen. Yeah, and and I'm not, and I would never believe that this guy is some super, uh, super uh, charismatic Tony Robbins esque character that is going to get people to yeah, change their lives. I don't think yeah. he's not a guru. He's yeah, he's and so he's just uh, he's just kind of dull. And whenever you have John Cusack in a John Cusack movie, you know he works. But whenever he's playing someone who he's not, mm-hmm. it winds up just being dull and contributing yeah. to the plotting pace of the movie i, I totally movie, agree i totally agree there if you had put um like a michael keaton or a nicholas cage that actually probably would have injected some uh, energy into this movie uh-huh. that it's sorely needed but you had john cusack playing a part that he's not really so do you think for. that do you think that character was maybe a missed opportunity to maybe get some of that that you were you felt was missing well, from yeah yeah from again contribute you know if, if you're going to be outlandish be outlandish go mm-hmm. in that direction don't half-ass it and so that's what that's what it felt here and what's funny is I, I believe originally this character was supposed to be played by Viggo Mortensen, who is David Cronenberg's other uh, his real go to his yeah his, yeah his 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 new go to actor, and I don't really foresee Viggo Mortensen doing much differently. So mm, I I could see I I could at least see the energy. I mean, from you know the the stuff that he's done with Cronenberg in the past. I mean, uh, no matter where you fall on uh, you know Eastern Promises or a history of violence, like he gives pretty. Uh, you know, energetic physical performances. Well, there. See, I see. I kind of I think that Viggo Mortensen's appeal as an actor is he's the strong, silent type, but he's capable of uh, expanding that and pushing himself. And so David Cronenberg likes messing with that. And this is not a strong, silent type character. Yeah. And so, given that he cast John Cusack and was going to cast Viggo Mortensen, it seems like it was just a misfire from the beginning. That maybe, maybe. Um, was let me ask you this: Did it seem like John Cusack was wearing eyeliner? Not maybe not throughout, but in in parts. Uh, if he did, I didn't notice. Okay, it like there. It, you know when it was? It was when he's doing like he's this guru, but he also does massage therapy or something like well, and and it, quite literally like massaging and therapy. Yeah, and again, so and, it, and again, that felt like oh, look at these Hollywood weirdos doing Hollywood weirdo things. Uh-huh. And I and you know that would have made a perfectly entertaining movie had they just gone further with it but it's almost like they just recorded people doing weird things and then recorded bad things happening to them and so it just didn't really feel like he ever committed to anything this this, i don't think that a hollywood how did you put it a hollywood meta cinematic uh 
just kind of observation and discussion is is really in Cronenberg's wheelhouse. And, you know, that's probably absolutely true. I mean, he's he's a director that's never actually worked in Hollywood in his entire this, as I career. understand it, this is the only time he has ever filmed in Los yeah, Angeles. From, it's always I, been in Canada. I didn't do a deep dive, but I went back through the past 40 years and yeah, it's always either Canada. I mean, Eastern promises was the UK. Um, right. Okay. In yeah. butterfly was Asia, mm-hmm. but still and cosmopolis. You've got New York, but still a lot of that shot in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, yeah, Canada is as well too. Yeah. Canada is his, uh, yeah. Some of, some of this film as well is really his, you know, he's very much an outsider. And so that was also something that I was intrigued by going into this is how is a Hollywood outsider going to, uh, you know, portray Hollywood, you know, it's, it's almost, almost as if, uh, you know, and, and he doesn't, he doesn't portray it very favorably, but maybe, maybe there is a little bit of that, you know, he's, uh, the kid who doesn't fit in here. And so he's, you know, kind of thumbing his nose at them. And see, I don't even, I not, wouldn't even go that far. Cause I don't think he cares that he doesn't fit. And I think that he just hates, he but, hates Hollywood and okay, all it represents, but, but and so still, he wants to punish but it. But still, he's just – there is just a – at the core of this, there's a ton of vitriol at Hollywood, the Hollywood industry, the Hollywood machine system, what have you. Well, and in, in, I think the best uh, cinema – I think the best pictures to me that critique the film industry are ones that are usually whenever you have a foreign-born director who still – is part of that system, and so, but they, but they come with almost a foreigner's uh, confusion about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so, but they but they have but they laugh. Billy at Wilder, it. and that's what I was just going to say. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard, probably the best Hollywood yeah. uh, expose. And then recently, Birdman. That's another situation where we have a bunch of Mexican filmmakers who are semi part of the system, but are able to are still confused by it and notice things that maybe the rest of us don't. I I don't know if confused is the right word as much as just, they see things because they come from the outside of it, but are, have been working in a little bit. They see things that maybe those who have just been in it their entire lives uh, or their entire careers uh, take for granted or don't really notice as weird or odd or out of place. Whereas with this, and I don't know, and my, my bad, I don't know Dave or uh, Bruce Wagner's experience, but with this, it kind of feels like, uh, David Cronenberg has just read a lot about Hollywood. Or, yeah, I mean, he's he's seen it from afar. He's never, it, definitely never been a part of it. Mm-hmm. And so it's weird for him to be holding up a mirror to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, Hunter, final thoughts on Maps to the Stars. Uh, I think we all know where you, where you land, but uh, do you have any closing arguments? If you are a David Cronenberg fan, by all means, you've already seen this, so... See it if you're a David Cronenberg fan. If you're looking for a Hollywood expose, you're you're you, for pretty much anyone. But for someone who's particularly looking for a really insightful Hollywood expose, I don't think you're gonna get at, get anything out of this. I would say two out of five stars. I didn't particularly enjoy it. Wow. Okay. Um, I think it's odd that ultimately, like, I can't disagree with anything you just said, but I had a very different experience with it. I really enjoyed this film. Uh, but then again, you know, I was able to latch on to sort of almost the metacinematic story that, uh, I found in the Agatha character, the Mia Vosikovska character. And, uh, you know, I just, I enjoyed, uh, the movie as her movie. I, I don't think this is his best film, but I still really enjoyed it. I 
think if you're either into David Cronenberg or into, you know, kind of his odd, surreal style, uh, you'll probably enjoy this. If not, uh, perhaps you should shy away from it. Uh, but, you know, Maps of the Stars is it's in theaters right now. It's available on VOD streaming. Uh, you can find it in a lot of places. All right. Um, so I was really looking forward to this because I, I after recommending Budweiser for American Sniper, I'm not sure where you're going to go with this as far as beer recommendations. So what do you got? This one was a little bit harder. Like, you know, Bud Heavy came as a obvious. Like, Even I thought it, of that. Yeah, it, it wrote itself. Yeah, you. I think when you walked in the door. Uh, last time you said, well, what's it going to be? Budweiser? Well, yeah, of course it's Budweiser. Um, but this week I have a pairing recommendation that just might match the pain and pleasure, or in your case, just pain, uh, you feel while watching Maps of the Stars. It comes from one of my favorite breweries, Rogue, out of Newport, Oregon. They have many conventionally delicious beers, as well as a short list of bizarre brews that might make you do a double take while scanning the shelves. There are the three Voodoo Donut flavored ales, and the truly weird Beard Beer, which is brewed with a unique strain of yeast that was found in the head brewmaster's, you guessed it, beard. Well, yeah, that one's actually pretty gross. Don't let your curiosity get the best of you. Uh, don't buy that beer. But Rogue's latest in their weird family of Frankenstein brewskis, I can recommend. Their Sriracha Stout. It's spicy and heavy and lingers with you long after the bottle is empty. Uh, now, I wouldn't say this beer is for everyone, uh, but much like Maps of the Stars, only for the seasoned or adventurous. And like the film that I'm pairing it with, it's fascinatingly enjoyable, but not necessarily among the best works of its creators. Uh, that recommendation is Rogue Sriracha Stout. Look for it wherever weird craft beers are sold. And given that this is a movie about Hollywood weirdos, I would actually recommend skipping the beer and just having a juice cleanse. <laughs> That's okay. So I, I'm recommending Rogue Sriracha Stout. Hunter is recommending a juice cleanse. A juice cleanse. So if you have seen Maps of the Stars or tried Rogue Sriracha Stout or are currently on a juice cleanse, uh, tell us about it. Send us an email at hello at wardstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around for our special feature segment as we talk about dramatic directors who attempt comedy. Inspired by David Cronenberg's semi-comedic Maps to the Stars, today Chris and I are going to discuss dramatic directors directing comedy, and this is kind of a area of, that is filled with a lot of dead bodies. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot to talk about. Maybe not a ton to talk about, but there's there's enough to you know fill a discussion and. It's a real mixed bag. Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even say it's a mixed bag. I would say that they're almost routinely failures. And these and these are fantastic directors who absolutely completely fail at doing straight comedy most of the time. And not all the time. And we have some examples that are otherwise. Mm -hmm. Well, and and I think that's something that you know I always uh, sort of like to make the case that really good comedy is sometimes the hardest thing to pull off mm -hmm. because there's so much in. Uh, you know, it, it's sort of like pulling off a really nice, beautiful, uh, moving, well choreographed shot. There's so many moving parts. Um, there's, 
you have timing, you have uh, delivery, you have all of these things, and uh, it's just a different muscle. Well, and I'm glad that you said muscle because that implies that it's involuntary, and I agree absolutely, is you cannot teach someone to be funny and you cannot teach someone to direct comedy. You either can or you cannot. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing is you have these very talented dramatic directors um, you know, many of the greatest directors who've ever lived and whenever they're doing comedy, they just don't have that muscle and yeah. it shows. Yeah. And, I don't know where we start here. Let's I, actually, let's actually, uh, start with the bad, good news first and then go to the bad news. Okay. Uh, let's then in, in that case, let's talk about perhaps this is definitely the, the greatest example that I could think of. Um, Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove or how to stop stop worrying and love the bomb. And yeah, in that picture, I was surprised that uh, to see it on your list just because it hadn't even occurred to me. That is not only a funny movie, not only a successful movie, but it's it's a classic. It's arguably you know it's, the best movie he ever did. Well, I, I I think there would be plenty of people that would take you to task to task for that. But personally, not you know not talking on a cinematic achievement level, but just personal enjoyment by far my favorite Kubrick movie. Like that's the one that I revisit more and more, maybe because it is a comedy and because it's such a good one, you know, like some of his other stuff is so heavy that, um, you know, it, while it's great, like 2001 is not a movie that I'm going to revisit every six months because there's just because it takes six months to watch because there's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but there's also just so much, you know, after, you know, to just digest after uh, after viewing that film. Yeah. And I think that um, Dr. Strangelove succeeds because principally because of casting. He, he Stanley Kubrick had the wherewithal, even though he's a director who directs, he, you know, his camera very much. His, yeah. He is really working the camera. And in many ways, he's doing that here. But there's a lot of holding shots in this in mm -hmm. Dr. Strangelove. And even though Peter Sellers gets a lot of credit, and of course, he did a magnificent job in his role. But really, the two funniest people in this movie are Sterling Hayden and George C. Scott, in my opinion. Well, They're just absolutely masterful. Let's, and, let's not let's not uh, count out Slim Pickens either. And, okay, and there you know, absolutely, Slim Pickens and a young and, and, James Earl Jones. And, yeah, and and that's sort of that's one of the things that I think is great with this all the way down the roster. Everyone is at, is great and at the top of their game and just really selling this what what could have very easily been a very odd bad. Sort of it, spoof. Well, and it, it could have turned into it's, a movie we're going to talk about here in a second. Mm -hmm. But Stanley Kubrick's true achievement in this movie, I think, is just setting the tone for his actors and telling them, this is the movie I want to make, and then kind of getting out of their way. But but also clearly understanding, you know, you're talking about the sort of just sitting a camera and letting uh, – pausing on a, on a reaction or something like that. Like, he clearly understood that – uh, that piece that you know I was mentioning in the the opening of the science of comedy, even if it's an undefinable science, you know he understood how to approach comedy differently than uh, you know the more dramatic things that that he did, and just throughout. Um, I mean, I think I don't know uh, if this is true or not, but I've heard several times you know a story that whenever he was uh, initially working on developing this project. It was, you know, the source material is a completely well. Serious and actually, I'm glad you just said that because there here. This funny story is uh, Sidney Lumet, another yeah, great director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He directed Failsafe, which mm -hmm. is a more literal translation of the book, and it's actually a really good movie. It's just not an all time classic, mm -hmm. and it came out after Doctor Doctor Strange Love, and so it bombed. Whenever it probably could have done fairly well. Ouch. 
Oh, uh, wow. It A-bombed. Uh, but from my understanding, and this, like, like I said, I don't know how true this is, but as he was developing it, he began, as he got deeper and deeper, began to realize, like, if I don't make this a comedy, people aren't going to take it seriously or they're not going to buy into it or they're not going to believe it. Like, he, I think, actually used comedy as a tool to make it a more powerful movie uh, because that – uh, that closing, you know, ending with spoilers for Dr. Strangelove, I mm-hmm. guess, um, closing with that, you know, we'll meet again and just, uh, mushroom clouds going up everywhere is sort of the perfect closing to that, that sort of scenario, but also just so like the only way to really take it in is to kind of, uh, do it a little tongue in cheek. Otherwise it's just disastrously depressing. And even though Kubrick was, you know, uh, well-versed in making something people. Yeah. yeah, um, You know, I think he, he made a great decision in choosing not to go that, that direction. Well, and a surprising decision from him. There's another director who's been very successful in that transition, who you actually know way more about than I do. And that's David Gordon green, because I've actually only seen the pineapple express. I don't have any experience. Exactly. Yeah. I don't have any experience with his earlier work. See, I, uh, I haven't seen everything. I've seen a lot of his, his early stuff. I think I, well, I, I've seen only bits of your highness, but l- let me just say, and actually, this up. Your Highness was, as I understand it, a total disaster. Yeah, but it, Pineapple Express was solid comedy. Yeah, and, and let me set this up a little bit. Like David Gordon Green was one of these guys who was doing before Pineapple Express was doing these very small little intimate indies of, uh, you know, just it, there wasn't a whole lot of structure to the plot mm-hmm. per se. You know, it's uh, more these character pieces. These, uh, you know, looking at uh, generally. Um, sort of working class, uh, sort of people with, you know, with, with George Washington, with, um, all the real girls, uh, snow angels. I haven't, mm-hmm. haven't seen, but, uh, you know, they were, they were these very small little intimate portraits and then pineapple express comes out. And I initially remember seeing like when seeing his name attached, I was like, there's got to be another guy named David Gordon Green. Because well, so there was nothing. There's nothing in his earlier work to really indicate that he would make no, a movie like this. No, it was weird. And and then Pineapple Express was so, you know, it was a very well-received movie. And then for a while, at least, well, you know, I think only time will tell where it goes from here. But for a while, like that's sort of what David Gordon Green was known as by, I would say, most of the public as the guy making these Pineapple Express or The Sitter or... Uh, Your Highness. The Sitter, I will actually say, not an altogether perfect movie, uh, but, but I really, really like it. Like, I will lose an afternoon to The Sitter if I see that it's on you know, HBO on a Saturday. Um, it's, yeah, it's, the- it's, it's trying to be a throwback to sort of the, uh, like, adventures in babysitting or something mm-hmm. like that, but with more F-words and, and that sort of thing. But the thing that I was amazed by with it was his craft and attention to detail in, in little things like there's uh, this sort of running joke that never really not a whole lot of attention is drawn to it. And it's not like it has a huge payoff. It's just sort of adding texture to the background of everyone seems to be watching these public access television shows that look like they were made in the eighties throughout the entire movie. Um, and it's just always on in the background. Uh, and I, I love that little, like, I, like, I don't think you would get that from, from a typical, 
from um, like a Sean Levy of Night at the Museum kind of director yeah, that yeah. that that additional bit of comedy. So to me, I guess with David Gordon Green is he always had that comedy muscle, but he, he but he began his career doing. No, I'm not going to say easier pictures, but whenever you're starting your career, just very just very different. I mean, I would say more if you're going to compare him to someone, I you know more lyrically like Malik sort of uh sort of stuff and, and so to see him turn on a dime like that was sort of amazing like i think it probably became diminishing returns but well some of that some of that might have also been that when he became the guy then suddenly he can't just make whatever he wants he's now uh, this is the script that we want you to make next. You know, maybe in that position. I don't know. Right, and even if you can d- direct, even if you can direct comedy, there's still bad scripts. You can direct yeah. action and still yeah. get a really bad script. So I guess he's he would be a mixed bag as far as comedy. Yeah, mi- mixed bag, but better than most. Well, and that transitions nicely into uh, directors who, mi- just, in many ways, just just, no, absolutely failed at comedy. Um, and so we'll start with probably the the biggest, which is I would say Steven Spielberg's 1979 picture 1941. Have you seen 1941? I have not seen 1941. I don't want to see 1941. Well, here's the, here's what is absolutely fascinating about 1941. He had just done Jaws, just just done Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So he's, he he can make any movie he wants. Exactly. Probably at that point, pretty much the most successful any director's ever been at any point in time. And so he even said 1941 was good for him because it brought him back down to earth. Mm-hmm. What you have is you have the 19, the 1970s Spielberg universe, uh, very, very bright, very, uh, lots of John Williams music, kind of like what you saw them attempting in super eight that, that Spielberg, the, the Spielberg world. Uh-huh. But then you had John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd as your lead comedians, but then it's also an ensemble piece coupled with a bunch of heavy-duty special effects so is shots. It, is it sort of all disjointed? Like you're, it, it almost sounds to me like you're describing, well, you've got Dan Aykroyd and uh, John Belushi mm-hmm. over here. You've got Spielberg's, you know, typical things over exactly. here. And so that's, you've got the action over here and like none of it, it's n- none of it's communicated. Well, and John Belushi, and here's the thing is it's always, it's all a Steven Spielberg movie. It's never a John Belushi or Dan Aykroyd movie. Right, yeah. And so you look at, uh, Animal House, or you look at Blues Brothers, mm-hmm. John Landis knew he was making a John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd right. picture, and so he let the, he let their comedy guide and, the movie. And I would, you know, I would still argue that those movies are kind of hairy, you know, not, not, uh, ultimate classics. Well, I think in comedy in, that it can be a not great movie, but if it's still hysterical, yeah, then it will yeah, stand the test of time. Like Caddyshack. Mm-hmm. No, no, absolutely. Caddyshack's got issues. Yeah, Caddyshack, House, Caddyshack is a terrible movie. It's really funny, but it's a terrible movie. And so, and so what happened then is you put, as you put, like I said, you put those two in a Steven Spielberg world and they, they never really do their thing. They try to do the thing that never really works. And then you couple it with this story about this, this young guy trying to find his girlfriend or something like mm-hmm. that. And it's just at no point in time does it ever decide what it wants to be. And the funny, and here's the interesting thing is Steven Spielberg is actually a funny director. He, but his 
directing is all sight gags because mm-hmm. the most famous being Indiana Jones. Well, Indiana Jones shooting the guy with the yeah. with the sword. That's a brilliant sight gag. And then we're going to need a bigger boat. Nah, that's yeah. a brilliant sight yeah. gag too. And he's very good at directing comedy as almost a, a release valve mm-hmm. for the tension he's created. And then he just lets yeah, that little bit of release we, valve. Kind of like I was speaking of earlier uh, in in the first segment with uh, Joss Whedon, the way that he used comedy with with action in Avengers to kind of. And I would actually argue that Steven Spielberg, I'm not going to say he invented it, but as far as adding that element to blockbuster filmmaking, he really kind of established that. Well, I mean, he helped invent blockbuster filmmaking anyway. But but as far as directing a feature length, and actually I believe 1941's long, and comedy really can't be long. Ideally, it shouldn't be long. And 1941, I think, is two hours or so. You know, Spielberg's not the only one who failed at comedy. Um, one of the greatest directors of all time, in my opinion, Martin Scorsese, does a really weird job at attempting a comedy with After Hours. Have you seen that movie? Yes, I have seen After Hours, yes. After, After Hours is a movie that I really love and adore, but also is no is not good. And it's not even it's not even great as a comedy. It's I think I like it almost as a historical oddity in the career of Martin Scorsese. Here's, yeah, and here's the thing about After Hours is we said that a comedy, even if it's not a good movie, but it's funny, it will mm-hmm. stand the test of time. After Hours to me is I enjoy watching it, but it's not funny. It's depressing. It's just not. It's yeah. The, the the moment that like stands out to me is just like, how is this a comedy is uh, I, I can't remember the exact setup. It's uh, Griffin Dunn, who, who plays our main character and the dad from Home Alone. Uh, do you happen to know his name? He's he's the bartender in this movie. We all well, yeah, the, the dad from the, Home Alone. The dad yeah. from Home Alone, uh, Mr. McAllister. And this, and I, you know, I didn't, I can't even remember, but this movie also had Catherine O'Hara in it. Had, so. Yeah, had Catherine O'Hara. Mm-hmm. Has a lot of amazing, you know, it's it has this ensemble cast of of characters in it. Um, but it's like and, and great comedian or you know, comedic acts as well, but very very weird. Anyway, he's speaking uh, with this this bartender. And I can't remember exactly what the setup is, but he uh, says something about having a terrible night, something about a about a woman. And uh, the bartender's reaction is something to the effect of, well, don't kill yourself over it or don't kill like so, something like that. And we have just found out within the past five minutes that a, a Patricia Ar- or not Patricia Arquette, excuse me, Roseanne Arquette's character, who um, sort of starts out this whole madcap night of. Uh, adventure through Soho uh, mm-hmm. has just killed herself, perhaps because of Griffin Dunn's actions. And so, I don't know if that's supposed to be a laugh line or if that's supposed to be like a well. In another director's hands, it could have worked. It, I mean, in, in like a John Waters so, hands, that could have worked. And it, <laughs> maybe, but it's so dark. It's just so dark, like throughout throughout the entire thing. My big thing is big problem with After Hours is. Martin Scorsese is known for his roving camera. Mm-hmm. And so that's the well, roving this, camera is terrific whenever and it's this conveyed. is actually the first time that he really gets. I mean, this is I can't remember the cinematographer's name now. Um, the guy that he's you know still using for. Um, uh, I mean, I, I'm almost positive he shot Goodfellas Casino, mm-hmm. uh, The Departed. This is the first time they worked together. It was uh, Fassbender's old uh, cinematographer back in the, the what 70s. Um, and. You you get a lot of that. You get some great cinematography. Like there are, and and there are these moments throughout it where um, 
and these are probably the things that I enjoy more than the comedic aspects. Uh, these moments where you get just really great bravura filmmaking, like uh, one shot that comes to mind is when he hails hails a cab at the beginning of the film. Uh, there's this amazing tight rack focus from the hand to the cab or from the cab to the hand. Uh, I can't remember which, mm-hmm. but it's just like so perfectly choreographed. And and here's the thing <clears throat> is this stands in remarkable contrast to something like Dr. Strangelove, because as you just said, it's bravura filmmaking, but it's competing with the comedy. It is exactly. It, it, his it's camera, not, it, it, like in Goodfellas, his camera is conveying a drug addled mm-hmm. haze. Mm-hmm. And so you have those two working together to create a, a cinematic experience and create something relatable with this. You have the camera doing one thing and you have the comedian doing another thing. Well, and, uh, and, it, and so they compete with each other and you don't really have an effect because of it. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because throughout there are these places where, um, I find enjoyment because I see him making like early on in the very beginning of the film, there's this nod to, uh, one of the first films ever made the, uh, what is it? Workers leaving a factory by mm-hmm. the Lumiere brothers. There's a very, I think, I think very blatant nod to that. Um, you know, there, there are these little nuggets throughout, uh, that from a film history perspective, a film nerd perspective, like I find interesting and, and, Nice and fascinating, but it does nothing for the comedic story. And, and, and exactly, and that's the thing is it it's it's fun, it's kind of enjoyable to watch, but it's not funny. Another nineteen seventies director, maybe not to the level of a Spielberg or a Scorsese, depending on uh, who you are. Some people might disagree, but who directed comedy and didn't work was Robert Altman with Popeye, which I believe came out in the early eighties and had a red hot Robin Williams at that yeah. time, probably as you know as big as a comedian's ever been playing the role of Popeye. And that's another situation where we have a Robert Altman movie with the the standing camera that just kind of zooms in and observes people doing their thing, but yet it's with a cartoon character, yeah, and see, so that I, that's doesn't work. It can't work. And I've never I've never seen Popeye. I only know it by. Well, I guess I know it by two things. I know it by sort of its reputation as just a like one of those films where it's like, how did this even get made? And then also by its actually fantastic soundtrack by Harry Nilsson. Um, the, the, that's the, the only part of, of Popeye well, that I've see, actually I saw consumed. It, I saw it at a younger age, so perhaps I need to revisit it for that soundtrack. Or, or you could just find the soundtrack. And on, just do that. Yeah, on Spotify or whatever. But I was just, I was just thinking in this a second ago is had Robert Altman done 1941, which was really an ensemble piece. Mm-hmm. And then Steven Spielberg did Popeye, which was hmm. more of a sight gag driven comedy. And that, kind of fits into Spielberg's sort of childlike Whimsy, whimsical yeah. whimsical worldview whereas 1941 huh. is is a is a comedy about multiple people during it's like it you know it, it could be nashville-esque right right so to me in conclusion if you are a seri- a dramatic director doing a comedy you can't really try and apply your dramatic style your dramatic filmmaking style onto comedy and think that it will work i think that's well but does does Kubrick, maybe he's the exception to the rule in, in this case. I mean, I, I think he's definitely the most successful of those that we've, we've spoken about. Uh, but he he definitely brings something different to it. Well, yes. and, and I think what happened with Dr. Strangelove is you have a person directing a, a, a dramatic style who and actors behaving over the top and ridiculous. And mm-hmm. so those two things working together winds up creating and, solid and satire. It's satire because, and, and because it's satire, that that's very effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas if he were to do just a straight comedy, maybe it wouldn't work. I guess we'll never know. <laughs> but uh, but and, and one other thing is that comedy is a muscle and you either have it or you don't. Yeah. And even if you're an extremely talented person, otherwise 
you, you just may not be able to direct a comedy. So, uh, what did we miss? What did we, what did we get wrong? Email us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com and tell us your thoughts. Stick around as Chris and I provide some film recommendations. My wife Betty tried to get me stay, but I was being stubborn, I did have my way. I threw my lasso around her waist. I pulled her close and I kissed her like in the old days. Me and Wiley in the air, we had it on the shore. We were putting wings on our oaky souls. Glasses down at the tip of my nose. I was typing just as fast as my fingers would go. I was typing just as fast as my fingers would go. I'm pretty giddy about my film recommendations, so Chris, I'd like you to go first, and I will try and not burst. Okay, let, let's build some anticipation Absolutely. Um, I actually have two recommendations today because uh, my first one, as I will get to, is a little difficult to find at the moment. That recommendation is the book Zeroville by Steve Erickson. James Franco is currently adapting this book into a movie starring himself and Seth Rogen and Will Ferrell. And, you know, normally I'm not an advocate for uh, reading a book before a movie comes out, especially if you know it's on the horizon. But I don't have a whole lot of faith in Franco to bring what's great in the book to the screen. So I think you're safe here if you can find the book. I say that because I attempted to buy this for a friend for Christmas last year and purchased six copies, received one, and that one was used and had notes all over it. Uh, the easiest way I've found to describe Zeroville is it's almost Forrest Gump for 70s cinema. It takes this character named Vicar and kind of uses him as a vessel to explore what was going on in uh, Hollywood at that time. He has interactions with a lot of people uh, and it, it has a nice little touch to it where it never really says anyone's name. It just sort of alludes to uh, to who they are, be it Margot Kidder or John Milius who's actually in the book quite a bit. And so it's sort of a treasure hunt as well between the people that he's running into and all these movies that he's seeing, uh, trying to identify exactly who or what Erickson is talking about. So that's my recommendation. If you can find it, I believe it's available, you know, on Kindle or Nook or, you know, digital sources, but uh, a little difficult to find the actual uh, paperback right now. Uh, my second recommendation, which... Uh, I have recently discovered is also extremely difficult to find. I didn't realize that before picking it, um, is Satoshi Khan's 1997 animated film, Perfect Blue. Now, Perfect Blue sort of has some connective tissue, if you will, to Maps to the Stars. It's about this uh, Japanese uh, pop idol who decides she wants to leave that world behind and try to pursue a career as a serious actress. And as she does this, things start to get a little weird. And by the end of this film, you're not really sure exactly what is real and what is either in her dreams or on stage or, uh, you know, all, all of these lines start to blur and it kind of gets to this real intense, uh, paranoia at the end. Um, I highly recommend it. I apologize. It's probably a little difficult to find. Uh, I think if you still get discs from Netflix, you might be able to find it there. I found it at the library. I definitely think it's worth seeking out uh, if you can find and get your hands on it. Uh, that's Perfect Blue by Satoshi Khan. 
All right. Um, like I said, I'm really giddy about mine. In fact, whenever I watched it last week, I nearly texted you, Chris, because. But then I thought, no, I have to wait because I just, I just want to reveal it here because I think this will appeal to you very much. Um, perhaps the greatest director of all time, Mr. John Ford, was not always John Ford. Before The Informer, before Stagecoach, before any of his other classic movies, he directed a picture in 1934 called Judge Priest. And Judge Priest starred an actor who is the patron saint of Oklahoma, Will Rogers. Now, Will Rogers, no one has ever been as famous as Will Rogers was when he was famous. I think you and I being in Oklahoma, we may have a, have a, almost an overexposure to him. But even in California, there's a beach in Santa Monica named after him. So this guy was significant. He was, as a political commentator, he was bigger than Jon Stewart. And as an actor, he was kind of... The equivalent of a Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. And in 1934, he was the highest grossing actor and the highest paid actor. So as far as multimedia, he would have been perfect for our Cults of Personality episode, and it just didn't even occur to me at the time. However, most of his pictures haven't stood the test of time. It's more his personality. Judge Priest would probably be the closest. And Judge Priest, like I said, was directed by John Ford. And from a cinematic perspective, it has a lot of Fordian tropes. You have the community gathered around gathered around the church, you know, boy chasing girl, all those things that, you know, I might as well have just described several John Ford movies. And then this one outsider character played by Will Rogers, who is a part of the community, but still kind of away from the community. He's a bit of an outsider, but yet the, the community still depends on him and will ultimately be, quote, saved by him because it's not a direct save. It's it's um it's it's more like a spiritual saving. So, I, like I said, I might as well just directed, or just described any John Ford picture. It kind of sounds like The Searchers, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, just in that ambiguous description. However, since it came out in 1934, it's really more of a Will Rogers star vehicle that just happened to be directed by John Ford and then had these Fordian tropes that he would continue to go back to over and over again. So that's why it's a fascinating picture from a cinematic perspective. I will forewarn the audience and Chris uh, that from a historical perspective there's a lot of cringeworthy moments because it is about a kentucky it's about a kentucky town about 20 or 30 years after the the civil war and you have a bunch of people who are really really proud that they were uh fought for the confederacy and so you have a lot of black characters including a hattie mcdaniel about five years before gone with the wind and all they want to do is just sing and cook and you know have a good time and they seem to enjoy uh, their servitude, and you have you also have this one character who is uh, who talks in a slow voice and just wants to you know fish and is really lazy. And I won't. And like I said, the very end is quite cringeworthy from that perspective. So I'll forewarn all of you uh, before you go into it. But I think you need to see it for that reason anyway, just to know what how Hollywood uh, approached the subject of race back in 1934. So you can find this on Amazon, Amazon stream. My recommendation is the 1934 picture directed by the incomparable John Ford and starring the iconic Will Rogers. It is judge priest. Well, Hunter, you continue to make recommendations. I've never heard of. I've never seen a John Ford movie. I didn't like, so I'll definitely be checking this one out. And that concludes another episode of war starts at midnight. Check us out online at war starts at midnight.com. There you can find links to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and keep up with our Tumblr, where I just posted some gifts of the opening scene of The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. If you like the show, help us out by rating us on iTunes. And if you hate the show or if you have any other questions or comments, go and shoot them to us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. 
Music in this week's show comes from The Vertigris by Bo Jennings. Find more at bojennings.bandcamp.com. Tune in next time when we will be reviewing David Fincher's Gone Girl and in our special features segment, Alfred Hitchcock's Air. Does it exist? And if so, who is it? Thanks for listening. Sayonara. Sayonara.